Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is as big a treat as I can have on the podcast. Uh, Today's guest is the most frequent guest on The Moment. One of my closest friends, favorite people to talk to, creative hero, mentor, mentee, ladies and gentlemen, Seth Godin. Hi, Seth. Brian, I got to tell you, when you say the moment, it's a trigger for me. It triggers possibility and it pushes me to dig in deeper. And I often listen to the pod just for the first 30 seconds and then I have to go back to something, <laughs> but I just need to hear you say that. So thank you for doing well, it for me today. Thanks. I wouldn't have a podcast if it weren't for conversations you and I had before I started it however many um, years ago. And I'm especially thrilled today because your book, The Practice, has just come out and is already a, a massive bestseller and and more than just being a bestseller. I know you're already getting notes and letters and emails and tweets, even though you don't see your tweets from people telling you how much this book has uh, affected them and how much this book has helped prod them forward and how understood they felt uh, by the person writing it. And um, I had the pleasure of reading the book in a couple of different forms and uh, I just love it and I find it so useful. And uh, I was so touched that uh, by the at the end of it, you, you mentioned that you felt like it was in some way uh, uh, a response to or inspired by conversations you and I have had on here. And, and that's awesome, man. What a, what a, what a great thing knowing that, um, you know, I've been reading you for so long and that, uh, somehow what we talk about stays in your mind and enough that you wrestle with it enough that, that this kind of thing can happen out of it. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually a little overcome. Uh, if it weren't for you, there'd be no book. If it weren't for the moment, there'd be no book. Uh, I meant what I said about you raising my game. So I'm in your debt. All right, let's get into it for everybody here. I have a bunch of stuff and uh, I have a bunch of stuff that we haven't talked about. You know, Seth, and I just want to say one other sort of personal thing, even though you hate the personal stuff generally, which is getting, you know, you and I have seen each other a lot over this pandemic on Zoom and then socially distanced in person. And it's just, I'll just say it here because we talk on here so much. I mean, Getting to see you and getting, you know, you and I had some, we've kind of ridden this thing out together in certain ways. And, and I just want to say, you know, your, your friendship and your counsel and the fact that, you know, you give me purpose sometimes and that sometimes you'll come to me with a question and, uh, uh, that kind of thing is rare. And, uh, and I just want to publicly say thanks. Thank you, Brian. All right, let's talk about the following. Let's talk about, I've been thinking about a bunch of stuff anticipating this. Uh, One thing I've been thinking about a lot, and it applies during the pandemic, but it applies to all the creative stuff you talk about in the book is the idea of the long haul. And what I find myself wrestling with sometimes, and I hear people wrestling with is, how to keep the long haul in mind without becoming dispirited by the fact of it. And uh, I've heard you talk about chunking and stuff in the past, but I'm not just talking about in the, you know, on a specific project. I'm talking about a life of trying to do a hard thing, dealing with all the vagaries that might come uh, your way. 
Okay, let's dive in. Uh, I have to begin by dividing between hobbies and professions. Uh, we are not going to talk about hobbies too much today. Hobbies are important. Everyone should have them. Hobbies are about authenticity and personal satisfaction. You shouldn't do your hobby for someone else, and you shouldn't try to sell your hobby or look for market acceptance for your hobby because that's why it's your hobby. But if you want to be a professional, it means that you are making a promise to someone else, putting yourself on the hook, showing up and saying, I made this for you. And there are lots and lots and lots of ways to do that. You can do it by being completely subservient to the audience. You can do it by being arrogant with the audience because ultimately it serves them because some people will choose to follow you as you go on this journey. And so when you talk about the long haul and being dispirited, I think we have to decode what's not happening for you in the short run that's making you dispirited as you go on this long journey, because we do need a cycle with the marketplace to keep going, but often we measure the wrong thing. And what do we measure? What's the wrong thing to measure? Well, we might measure whether our agent smiles when they see us. We might measure how many likes we got for something we put on uh, some piece of social media. We might measure how many followers we have or how big the advance was on the last project we did. Okay. Uh, well, this is great. This is great. You just, okay. So uh, another way to look at the agent smiling at us is is something we've talked to Helene, your wife, who's this incredible uh, um, owner operator of a uh, group of bakeries. Um, and what it made me think about is if, I mean, she gets the, her bakery is the, by the way, bakery and, and she gets wonderful Yelp reviews. But if there's even a Yelp review that's not five stars, I've seen it take a toll and uh, on a lot of people. And that's the kind of thing, right? You're, you're trying to do something for the long haul. And then something happens in the short run that you can't control. And sometimes it might make you feel like there's no point. Or like, well, this thing could actually disrupt my way to the succeeding on the long haul. And it uh, balancing how much to respond in the instant versus how much to keep your eye on where you're going is tricky. How do you how do you disambiguate that stuff? Yeah, bingo. So my David Chang story, which he may not remember, uh, when Momofuku first opened, uh, they weren't busy on Saturdays at noon. Uh, they hadn't become famous yet. And the family and I used to go into the city for lunch and we'd sit at the counter. It's not a very big place. And uh, I don't eat meat. And I would say to the person working the grill, love the Brussels sprouts. Can I have the Brussels sprouts without the bacon on them? And that's a win-win because they don't have to pay for the bacon and I get to eat the Brussels sprouts. And four weeks in a row, this is delicious. And the fifth week, I'm pretty sure it was David behind the grill, but I'm not sure. Uh, I order them and he turns to me and he says, we make them with the bacon because we like them with the bacon. And that's the kind of restaurant we are. We get that you're a vegetarian. We really appreciate your support. But there's a restaurant three doors down that somebody else runs that's way more friendly to vegetarians. Why don't you start eating there instead? And that was the day that, at least for me, David Chang became a success because he was able to say, it's not for you. He was able to do it with respect and dignity and generosity and say, there's someone over there who will serve you better than we can serve you because we don't want to become the kind of restaurant that has to compromise for every person who walks in the door. And and what if you're not someone with as much agency as Dave who owns a business and is doing that? What if you're someone 
who has a good new idea and you're working for someone else and they don't respond to it and you're trying to serve them, you're also trying to serve holistically the whole thing. You know, how do you sure. then get up the next day and come up with the next? Because so much of what your book's about is being able to do the work each day in the way you define the work, you know, and, um, and there are so many roadblocks that get put up. And, and I think in a time like this, these roadblocks can seem insurmountable. Oh yeah. Cause it's all fraught. We're standing on, you know, thin ice with quickstand underneath and it's raining out. And mm -hmm. in that moment, we come to believe that sheltering through the storm is all that's on offer. So I think it's very important to acknowledge the moment that we are in and say, in this moment, conditions are non-ideal. But it's also worth remembering that it's when conditions are non-ideal that almost every single creative breakthrough happens. Because creative breakthroughs only occur when what was working isn't working anymore. And it's in those shifts, you know, in, in your business, it's, you know, shifting from film to television or radio to TV. In those moments, you need a creative breakthrough. And life was not easy for somebody who was in a dying medium when another medium started to take up the slack. And I get it. But if you just weather out the storm, that's insufficient. But I want to shift gears because you, you made a really good point about what if the client, the boss, the people you're here to serve don't get the joke. They don't like what you brought them. And I think it would be really useful. I've been saving this conversation to have with you to talk about genre. Or as the late, great Alex Trebek said many, many times, I can't even say genre. Genre, um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, people who are creatives bristle at the idea of genre because they think it has something to do with generic. It has nothing to do with generic. It's the opposite of generic. Genre means that you understand your part in the chain, in the process, in the market, well enough to make something magical that still rhymes with what came before. You've done the reading. You respect the audience enough that you can't just show up and say, this is like nothing you've ever seen or heard before. It actually is where it belongs. And one of the things that you and Dave do so beautifully and have from your very first film is you understand what has come before. There is no nook or cranny that is unexplored. And then you put something on top of it that blows people away. But if you didn't have genre, you wouldn't be able to go forward. So lots of times people show up and go, hey, boss, hey, market, I got this great idea. And then when the market says, eh, they blame the market, when what they really should realize is that they didn't understand the genre they were in. They didn't understand how big the box was and use the box as a lever as opposed to a trap. Let's, that's all, I understand everything you're saying. And it's great, you explicate that amazingly well in the book, complete with a name check to me, but, uh, which I appreciated a great deal. But let's talk about the emotional side of that because mm -hmm. in our private conversations, we talk about the emotional side a lot. And the emotional side meaning, uh, when you get, you know, I think a lot about the fact that for a while you weren't writing books because as you've said on here and in other places, it, it, there was pain attached to it and you said it can find a way for it to have utility in the market. And then now you're back to writing books, which you now see is something that it's not just for you. It's for everybody. We need your books. 
But can you just talk about the emotion? How to accelerate? This is, I guess, what I want you to talk about. How have you learned to accelerate the emotional cycle from the uh, uh, from the grappling with the rejection and feeling bad and feeling thwarted to getting to the other side of it where you're producing the work and ideating and changing and making the thing um, uh, better again? Uh, uh, so, you know, the, the, there are tools I know that you use. There are things you think about. So can you just talk a little bit about how, the repi- how to make that cycle happen faster? So I wrote something a bunch of years ago that wasn't true, and I have worked to make it true. Uh, and I'm still not as good at it as I want to be. But it is super useful. Uh, and I think it's essential for any creative who doesn't, count on a super lucky streak to have in their arsenal. And it's, we have to figure out how to detach from the outcome while we are doing the work. So I can remember word for word, the rejection letters from 30 years ago and the slights and the things that just didn't go right, despite how hard (laughs) I had worked to make a thing what it could be. And I was a wreck because I was attached to the outcome. I thought I had a good reason to be attached to the outcome, which is I was broke. And I wasn't going to be able to keep doing the work unless somebody got the joke. And so each rejection cut, it hurt, particularly when it was personalized by people who were dealing with something I couldn't see at the time. And... Over the years, I have figured out that my work gets dramatically better and my life gets better when I do the work, simply the work, merely the work, disconnecting from the outcome. And the blog has helped me with that enormously because there is no outcome from the blog. I don't have comments. I just recently took off the last vestige of stars and thumbs up and all that other stuff. I don't read what people write about it on Twitter. So I write a blog post. It is what it is. And I don't keep score because the act of keeping score wasn't fuel. It was instead slowing me down. It was holding me back. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't listen to the market. It doesn't mean we can ignore the person we are here for. But it means that if while we are creating it, we are imagining the standing ovation, imagining that there will be zero criticism, we will end up uh, ruining the work because we will ruin it in service of everyone sort of liking it. That's 100% true. It's one of those, there's no, there's no air between our positions. But, but how do you, man, I need you to talk a little more about how you reconcile that with something that's throughout your work, when, which is the difference, between, as you started with, the hobby and work is it's for somebody. So how do you, and, I, and then I want to talk more about how to turn a hobby into work, right? Something I think about a lot with the songwriting, but how do you do both things? Meaning, how do you do the work detached from a result and then also have to keep keep a, a, a 
changing it till you land at the target, right? So how do you, because, you, you know, there is an audience that, or there is a, a client base that's going to respond. Right. So I, I think I mostly backed into it, but I, I'm thinking about 1986 and I know I did part of it on purpose, which is we have to be really clear about what enough is and we have to be really clear about who exactly it's for. Mm-hmm. So a bunch of years ago, I got a phone call. Would I like to audition for this new show? It's going to be on in a year and a half. It's called Shark Tank. Would I be willing to be the judge who's a jerk? And um, it's TV. It's ABC. You'll be famous. You'll have all the things that everyone's supposed to want. And with no hesitation, I said, I don't want to be that. Because if that means I have to be a jerk to people who are trying really hard, count me out. Um, When I got into the book business, I had a chance to go into the film business. And I decided to stick in the book business because the people I knew, because I didn't know you, from the film business were playing by a different set of rules and keeping score in a different way. And I didn't want to please them. I liked the idea of pleasing the kind of person who I was having to please in the book business who was keeping score of a different set of metrics. So when you pick your audience, you pick your future. And you don't get the right to pick the audience you want and expect them to behave the way you want them to. They're going to behave the way they behave. And how do you reconcile that? So yes, I agree. Again, agreed. But I guess what I'm asking is what trick do you use personally so that you're aware, because you're aware of it, you're aware you're publishing a book, you're doing a bunch of stuff, you, you like anyone would, want to have the audience read it, you want it to land with those people, yet when you're working on it, you want to divorce yourself from it. So is there a, a moment in the process when you're doing the work that then you, you take the time to then, in an, in a, an interregnum of sorts, to, to then uh, uh, think about what the feedback might be and then go back into the work again? I mean, what is that process like that goes from sort of the most purely creative spot to the spot that's going to present something to the world? Okay, so I, I'm, I don't believe that there's such a thing as a purely creative spot. I think we're constantly reverse engineering based on the understood mm-hmm. but not necessarily vocalized limits of what we're working with. When I started in the book business, I didn't understand what those constraints were. And so I made things that had my fingerprints all over them that no one would publish. And I understood after a year of failing that if no one published my work, it didn't matter whether my fingerprints were on it or not because no one was going to see it. And so I shifted to a generous posture that said, first, which gatekeeper am I going to get this through that will enable me to eventually end up in front of a reader who will benefit from this. I'm not writing this for me. I'm not writing this to show off. I am writing this because I can turn a light on for that person, but it's a bank shot because first I got to get it through. So so how does that synthesize with, uh, just for a practical purpose, how does that synthesize with when you're then writing, you're not thinking about that audience? Is it because you've decided on the concept, you know the box you're in, so then you're free when you write? No, no, I'm totally thinking about my audience. I am not willing my audience to act in a certain way. I have made the best empathic decisions I can about their state, about their dreams and their desires and their fears. And if they don't get the joke, okay. But first I I had to decide 
who that group was and make mm-hmm. some assertions about what they needed to hear. I'm wrong a lot, but while I am doing it, I am consistent to my assertions. And if I'm wrong, I'm fully wrong. Right. I, I get that. I, it's sort of like, you know how Hemingway would always say he was he was competing against dead authors. And, and I've thought about that a lot. And part of what I think it might mean is he was writing uh, in a way that he thought those people and people who liked those people would respond to it. And he wasn't going to give a fuck about anything else. If he, if he was able to do the work on that level, he would find an audience, basically. Well, we're dancing around something here. And I think what we're dancing around is fear. Yes. And there are lots of ways to rationalize through the fear. But we should just name it, which is writer's block, as you and I have talked to about ad infinitum, isn't real, and it's real at the same time. It's just misnamed fear. Fear of bad writing, fear of ridicule, fear, fear of being seen as a fraud and an imposter. Yes. And the way we do generous, important, creative work is not by making the fear go away, because it cannot go away if we're doing important, generous work. When we let the work in, the fear comes with it. And so I view it as, how would I feel if I got tired while running a marathon? I would not be ashamed of it. I would be proud of it. And so if I'm not feeling afraid when I am writing my work, I know I am not doing my best work. Yeah, me too. I think that's exactly right. I wrote down this word monolith when you were talking about these rejections and there's something in almost like the collective unconscious that this fear of facing a kind of rejection that, that doesn't acknowledge or see you yep. is so painful that we'll do almost anything to avoid it. You know, do you know what I mean? Well, is the alternative rejection that does see us? I think so, right? A, a rejection that says, I, I, yeah, I much prefer, I would much prefer rejection that says, I actually see what you tried to do. I get what you tried to do. Here's why it doesn't exactly work. Yeah, as opposed to this sort of like, I don't know why I'm being rejected, which is what you get so much in the world now. Just well, because people put stuff out there and there's no response. It's a correct to avoid. What I want from a colleague and a co-conspirator is that. Someone who is good enough, insightful enough, and professional enough to act as if. If I was the kind of person who believed X, Y, and Z, I would have liked what you did here. But I am asserting that the audience doesn't do that, so they won't like this. Let's decode that bit by bit. And I have found that the number of people who can have that conversation is tiny. And the chances that they are in very close familial or professional proximity to you are very low. And so I seek them out. And real breakthroughs in my career have happened. Like So Bob Dorf, who is one of the inventors of the Harvey Wallbanger drink, which is a great trivia question, um, was an important publicist for years and years. And he saw me give a talk 18 years ago. And he came up to me at the end of my talk. This was early in my uh, bit about using 
no words on my slides. And he gave me like three pieces of feedback that I have used every single time since then. It was priceless. It was worth a million dollars, the three pieces of feedback. Since then, a million people, two million people have seen me give talks and no one's given me feedback. <laughs> right. Because it's, it's hard to do and it requires a level of generosity and bravery and care plus domain knowledge. So, you know, one of the cool things about your industry is there's more of it there than in most places, but there's still an enormous number of frauds who are pretending they know what's going on, but they're just guarding their luck. And I think it's important to respect those people, but also ignore them. Yeah, that's brilliant. I hope everybody circles that as they're listening and goes back and hears Seth say that again. Uh, frauds protecting uh, the idea that they have domain knowledge that they don't actually have is great to recognize and to allow yourself to depersonalize rejection. All right, I have some weird, I have some weird questions that you're going to like talking about. Okay. Uh, because they all relate to the stuff you're writing about and thinking about but coming from a, a different place than we've talked about it before. This is sort of the opposite of the Bob Dylan question we've spent hours arguing <laughs> out, which is about a talent one can't comprehend. And uh, I was thinking about ACDC, who just put out a new album today. And I've seen online so many people so excited about the new ACDC album, which intentionally sounds just like the last 10 ACDC <laughs> <laughs> which sounded a lot like the 10 before that. No, I love ACDC. And, uh, and what I thought about as I, as I was putting on their record and it is, it's just immediately an ACDC album is what do you, how, what, what is the lesson to be learned from, uh, uh an entity like that, that goes deep. Like so many of us want to, want to complete, always want to iterate, want to change and iterate all the time. Um, because we're worried about being pigeonholed as a thing. But the idea of going deep into a thing instead of going wide, and it seems like there's maybe a lesson to be learned from ACDC and the sound of what it is that they do. And I was wondering if that might hit you in any way. Oh, I love this. Okay, so pigeons are glad that they have pigeonholes. They exist for a reason. And you can... Yes. A, a sinecure like that is a really useful way to live a productive life where you're saying there's a group of people who have defined the work I do as a genre unto itself. Yes. And I am the one and only person who can do it the way I do it. And I'm going to serve those people by giving them what they want. What you don't get when you do that is a life on the wire. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. They are creating a product fuels people, that gives them something that they want. But if they went to bed last night before the album dropped, worried that the album wasn't going to succeed, they're foolish. Because of course the album's going to succeed. They've proven it again and again, that this is what people want. The same way, if you go to Nathan's on Coney Island and they give you a Nathan's hot dog, you got exactly what you came for. Nothing wrong with that, but it's different than living a life on the wire. And what are the rewards of living a life on the wire? Because I think, well, one thing I would suggest about the difference, and I think it's worth you talking more about this as I pose, here's how I'm going to pose it. So a lot of people wish they could do the same thing again and again. But the thing is, ACDC always makes, it seems to me, 
they actually always make sure that the quality, and I know you love to define the word quality, but they always, the intrinsic thing that's happening mm-hmm. in their albums um, isn't going to deviate from what, meaning it's, it, they're still going to give you, they're not just going to give you the guitars that sound like that. They're actually going to do the work of coming up with right. riffs that by those standards are good riffs. They're going to yep. come up with choruses that by those standards really work. And that part is not, it may not be scary, but it's very hard, I think. Yes, Or for more sure. people would do it, right? So there have to be rewards there. They're not an ACDC cover band. Right. They're ACDC. Those are two totally different things. And I... If I if I'm not showing enough respect to them, I apologize. It's just no, it's you are. It's you are showing respect. I'm I'm more talking about it's for super, people doing work. Super yeah. hard to do something that is in and of itself. And you know, so if we look at Richard Serra, Richard Serra makes yes. two million pound sculptures. And if you look at his early work, it's not Richard Serra work. It's work done by an art student named Richard Serra. And it was years later before Richard Serra became Richard Serra. And now. I mean, I have no idea if he's still active, but now he can tell when a piece of work is worthy of putting his name on it because it's in and of itself. It is a complete whole of what it is supposed to be. It is not just a reproduction of what he did yesterday. And to do that is really difficult. And, you know, I was listening to a 1976 LP of Gene Roddenberry talking to different people he worked with on Star Trek the other day. And when you hear Roddenberry talk about how he approached Star Trek, each great Star Trek episode is in and of itself. And the ones where he varied and tried to come up with something outside the genre were either, you know, hack jobs or failures, but you can make one that has no line that was in the previous week's episode, but is clearly in and of itself. Yes. And there's a value in that. How do you think about that when you set out to do a piece of work? In other words, how do you think about the fact that to a certain audience, um, you are a brand like ACDC is, yet you want to Mm -hmm. offer something new each So how does a a creator who's not at the beginning of their career, I guess this is why I'm interested in this, right? right? Someone who's not at the very beginning, but is trying to find a way to still put themselves into the work but they know there's an expectation from the audience. So how do you balance those things? You, Seth Godin. And then yeah. how should we balance those things? Well, no, this is something I've been wrestling with particularly in the last seven months. So sometimes someone will send me a blog post that I wrote five or 10 years ago, and I will read it not remembering anything about writing it. But I know I wrote it because it sounds like me. And... Um, That took a long time to develop. My blog is my blog. It sounds like me. And as the times of 2020 were and are so fraught, there were people who said to me, you have all this power and leverage. You should repurpose your blog and make it about that. And I really wrestled with that because part of me wanted my blog to be my blog, but it's not. It's Seth's blog. And Seth's blog does a thing. It is in and of itself. And I was really torn because if I really felt like shifting to current events and politics and things like that would have changed things substantially, of course, but it's not my tool. It is a thing that belongs to a lot of people and it is in and of itself. But when I work on a new thing that isn't the blog, in those moments, 
I am digging into a deeper place and saying, well, I'm going to live with this thing, this medium, this project, this company, this new approach to something for a long time. So I should build it in a way that I would be happy living with and inside of. And it's not going to be cesspool. This is going to be a new thing I made and some people aren't going to get the joke and that's okay. Well, but here's the thing. To the astute reader of the blog, you actually didn't do what you just said. <laughs> so why don't you try, let's try again. And why don't you talk about what you actually did on the blog, Seth, which is, talk, I mean, you got to talk, I mean, we have not talked about this directly. So this, I'm not using special information. I'm a reader of the blog. And so come on, talk about what actually happened. Cause you I, didn't just ignore those people and you didn't just decide you weren't going to address it. And I think it's valuable to talk about the way, so people could go read the last four months of blogs. And why don't you talk a little bit about what actually happened on the blog? Well, I, my I have friend, my I, dear friend. I have a different take on it because I okay. can point to blog posts from 10 years ago and 15 years ago where I did, exactly, sure. where I did exactly the same thing. Sure, with maybe not as much frequency. No, you depends. Um, the thing is that what I was responding to was uh, a real need for roadrunner coyote type uh, broad statements that I um, felt would be ineffective and actually undermine the way that I write and who I'm writing for. So you're correct that the people who are in sync with me and my voice and what I was saying, I'm thrilled that what I was trying to teach came through. What I was responding to is that's different than um, day trading in but, the yes, moment. Of course, but that, this goes back to no, but I want to, I think you're heroic here and I want to go back to talking about that, that in fact... Because what I love, Seth, is that you're so true to the values that you espouse. You're one of the few public figures who, who is in the business of sharing your thoughts about how all of us can uh, keep growing, who actually walks it the way that he or she talks it. And, uh, and I would I say, you know, I know that because I know you intimately, but I really know that from knowing your work, which is even better. And so I would say that... You always talk about this question of authenticity as being kind of BS, and I know what you mean by that. On the other hand, what you hold to be important and crucial, you did find a way to put into your blog without changing its form or readability. And we only have to look to yesterday. And yesterday, without, and you're going to tell me you wrote it nine months ago, and I, I don't care. Uh, because what happened yesterday is right in the dead smack in the middle of your blog is the following paragraph. Results don't care about our explanation. We need a useful explanation if we're going to improve, but denying results doesn't change them. November 12th, 2020. And, and so didn't you actually find a way to be true to your audience who wants from you what they expect from Seth's blog and true to your innermost thoughts and feelings and concerns about the world. Yeah. And I've been doing that as long as I can remember.
Well, then in fact, when people said you should change the blog, that perhaps they just weren't reading it carefully enough. Correct. And I understand why they would feel that way. That as someone who has had so much good luck and so much privilege, I have never been in a movie theater that was on fire. But if I was, and somebody wasn't screaming fire at the top of their lungs, I would be annoyed at them. Yeah. So you're going to write about results if you feel it's important to write about results. But I'm also going to do it in a way that doesn't involve screaming at the top of my lungs. Yes. You served both things. That's mm-hmm. what I was so happy about when I read that blog post, right? Not even knowing we were, that was going to come up today. But I, but I do think for people listening, when, when there's this question of, I want to be myself and I want to say the thing and, or I want to do the thing, yet the, 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 the medium in which I'm working doesn't allow for it, go back and listen to the way Seth is talking about what he does and then go back and read the blogs that have come out over the last four months and understand how you can serve both things. It takes a tremendous amount of skill and work. Um, and you have to be willing to work hard enough at it to do that, right? I mean, uh, to craft something like that, you have to actually be thinking about, like you said at the beginning of this, your audience in a way. So here's a, a, a short personal story that I've not told in public. Uh, I've been to the gravesite of Tom Thompson, uh, the great Canadian painter who they formed the group of seven shortly after he died, more than anybody else's grave, more than any grave of anyone in my family. It's up in Algonquin Park. And I would take uh, school kids, 80, 120 at a time, me and two other adults on a 10-mile canoe journey to visit this uh, thing. And I was always in the back because I was a canoeing instructor. And I was always in the canoe with the smallest, youngest, weakest kids. So um, everyone's coming back from the trip and they've gone off ahead. So it's just me and two nine-year-olds. And I've had surgery on both shoulders. They don't work very well. And to get across the portage, I threw the 70-pound canoe on my back and started walking. And as I threw it on my back, my shoulder dislocated and was right in the center of my chest, just flopping there. The authentic me would have been heard in Toronto. It hurts so much. (laughs) And that isn't going to help me get home. And I somehow got out of my larynx the following sentence, Tracy, could you come here for a second? And I have a a canoe on my head, right? I'm bent over with my shoulder in the middle of my chest. And I said, would you mind just tugging my arm a little bit? And it turns out Tracy was somehow related to Hulk Hogan, unbeknownst to me. And with two hands, pulls my arm so hard, like a Barbie doll, it goes, right back into the socket. That hurt again. And I said, okay, now let's paddle home. The point is that my desire to be consistent in that moment got me to where I needed to go more than being authentic would have. Yes. Yes. Well, this literally leads into old definition, leads into uh, this question that I had here, which is uh, about loyalty, a cousin of authenticity and not really something you've talked about that much publicly. So most of us love to identify as loyal. 
And you talk about serving the audience, the customer, being a professional, but there's also the notion of serving the version of yourself that started on the path. How do we balance our varying, and I think it's different from authenticity because loyalty involves the other, some other entity to which we're being loyal, maybe a part of ourselves. How do we balance these various loyalties? Wow, that's such a juicy question, Brian. Wow. Okay, so first the marketer answers that airlines talk about having loyalty programs. Airlines have no loyalty. For a dollar, we switch airlines. <laughs> yeah. And um, so the, the programs are basically just an organized form of bribery slash lottery to pay us for not switching for a dollar. Instead, we'll only switch for $20. That's not what loyalty really means. Loyalty is a price we pay because we are telling ourselves a story about who we are and where we used to be. If there is no price, there is no loyalty. Then you're just making a series of short-term decisions yes. that would have happened yes. regardless. And so when we start decoding who we are and what story we tell ourselves about being loyal to ourselves, about being loyal to a publisher, about being loyal to an idea, we have to come back to who's it for and what's it for, this work I seek to do. And um, I remember when I was struggling so hard to make it as a book packager. And we finally had a project that was working. And it was five years in the making, maybe more. And it was working. And it turned out that the client sent a lawyer to every meeting was harassing us, was the most difficult client my small team and I had ever worked with. And I knew we could work our way through it. And we had a meeting as a team. And I said, these people represent one third of our income. We might not be able to keep everyone on the team, but if we stick with them, we're going to become the kind of people who are good at working with difficult clients. Mm. And I said, I don't want to be that kind of person. And I wanted do this for the reason I set out to do this, which is to do work that I'm proud of in a way that I'm proud of. And to the team's credit, they had my back and we just gave all the rights back to these people. They ended up making a fortune from it. And uh, we replaced all of their business in 90 days because getting back to what we sought to do was so freeing and powerful that we were able to get back to work. And I have never once regretted making that decision. And that was because you knew where your loyalty should lie. Right. I wasn't loyal to bigger and I wasn't loyal to profitable. I was loyal to, if I wanted to make a lot of money, I should have gone to Wall Street to have an MBA, right? I did this for a different reason. So many loyalties are inherited, right? They're, they're, received, with, they're received in a way. And, and what tools do you use to find out does it always just show up because of a conflict, meaning you know, a situation arises that forces you to think it through? Or are you ordering those things somehow ahead of time for yourself? This is also great. Let me just interject one thing about sunk costs because it could yes, be please. easily Do confused it. with loyalty. Yes. Sunk costs are the very common human desire to stick with something that was hard to get in the first place. Mm, that after yep. we have acquired theater tickets or made a decision to go on vacation or uh, married somebody, 
we look at the sunk costs and we say, well, I might as well stick with this because to change means acknowledging that I was wrong and starting over. And what we know in a business context is that ignoring sunk costs is one of the single smartest things you can ever do. Every day you make a new decision based on new information. And if you want to accept the gifts from your former self, please do. But if you don't want those gifts, if you went to law school for three years and you hate being a lawyer, you don't have to take that degree from the U of By the way, same thing. If you're an ACDC fan and you've defined yourself and you wear the t-shirt and you play the same guitar and you don't like the new album, you don't have to spend two months listening to it out of an outmoded idea of loyalty. Correct. So what... I think is really practical and useful to do is to amplify your loyalties by treating them like sunk costs in the way that people make a mistake with sunk costs. Meaning you start modeling for yourself at expense what it is that you stand for. Because at, exp- at expense, say more about that. Yes, at, at expense. It can't be free, right? Yes, that right. If, if three times in a row you've walked away from a client who was a jerk, the fourth time, when the stakes are even higher, it will be much easier for you to walk away from them because the sunk cost of, I've done this before, that's who I am, makes you more loyal to who you want to become. Right. Flip it and use the sunk cost to your, use the sunk cost fallacy to your benefit, actually. Correct. Yeah. Correct. As a way to groove, because well, what we're talking about is grooving behaviors. So as a way to groove that which you want to be loyal to, not which you are default loyal to because of some uh, something your parents said or something you thought mattered, but actually uh, reifying your loyalties in a conscious way through your actions. So you've told me several stories about various famous uh, movie and record producers who were just pieces of work, prima donnas, uh, just a, di- sure. a rolling disaster. I am guessing that most of the time they did that, they were actually playing a role. They had decided that this is who they were, that you couldn't possibly have pissed them off more than most people had. They were just saying, well, this is what I do in a situation like this. We act in a way and then we become that person. And so when you decide what role you're going to play as a creator and you practice it at cost, then it is more likely that you will groove that and become that person. Brilliant. Well said. Okay. We rarely talk on here about form, usually content, but reading the practice, it may, you know, it's the, uh, the form so incredibly serves the content. And so it made me want to know, like, how much do we need to know about the form ahead of time? And how flexible should we be on that as we're doing the work, whatever that work is? I know you think about form a lot, so I, I, but we don't talk about it as much. So I would like you to talk about it a bit. I've been on the cutting edge of media since I worked at Spinnaker Software. No, since 1976, when I got my first email address, I helped invent computer educational computer games in 1983. Uh, I think form is essential to giving us the vessel that our creativity can fit into. And if you skip over the discussion with yourself about form, you have really hindered your ability to do 
the work with the impact you hope for. I think you don't have to do it first, but you have to have the conversation. Where along the way do you have the conversation? For me, it's always at the beginning. So when an idea surfaces, whether it's for a course that you want to give or a series of videos you want to make or a book, right? as the idea, um, hey, I want, to, I want to serve this audience by presenting this batch of material, um, you're immediately thinking about not just, hey, it's in a form of a book, but the form that that book ought to take to be the most effective uh, version of it. It's even more than that. Like the Alt-MBA, I defined the entire form before I came up with one lesson. And I just did a, 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 a podcast series for a company called Himalaya. And I defined the entire form before I figured out what it was even going to be about. Um, I need to understand the foundational building blocks before I start moving the blocks around. So that's the gift that that gives you. Once you know the form, you know how to fill it. And you don't know how much you should fill or what you should do until you know the form. Yeah, because I can't, I'm sure other people have different habits and different ways of doing their creative work. But, you know, Clement Greenberg is uh, really well known as an art critic for pointing out that the picture frame is essential if you want to understand European art. Without the picture frame, there's no European art. And once you have a picture frame and a canvas, now you're pretty limited. And then there are some colors that hadn't been invented yet even more limiting within that framework. Now, what are you going to do? Mm, right. Yeah. So form uh, isn't a, the constraint of form is useful. So my blog intentionally doesn't use 80% of the features that WordPress would let it have. Because if I took those constraints away, I couldn't do a blog post tomorrow. You don't use video for instance. I don't use video. I don't put uh, embeds in. I don't do polls. I don't put in all sorts of the cool fractal interactivity things that make it hot for a minute. Because then I would spend my time saying, well, what do I do with that part of the medium? Instead, yes. all I get is 26 letters and I can't write something more than a page in length. That's it. Those are my constraints. Right, and that allows you to do the thing that you do. Okay, and no semicolons. Did I mention that? No semicolons. Related to this, that's really important, the no semicolons. I know somebody who puts a semicolon in every... Their, their constraint is, <laughs> I must use one semicolon in every email. And uh, I've seen it benefit that person, and it helps them. It helps them think about what they want to say. One semicolon per email. There you go. Uh, I know you've gotten emails from this person, too. and uh, well, Later, offline, we can talk about it. Um, I've been thinking about realtors lately in uh -huh. this market because I've been thinking about how you reframe your mission when circumstances on the ground change. And I've watched realtors in cities and their circumstances changed in one way. And realtors in exurbs and rural environments, their circumstance changed in a whole different way. And you would think that, that the city re realtors were absolutely having a harder time of it. And, and they probably are, but I've seen realtors in these exurbs or rural places where suddenly the values have skyrocketed. They're decrying the lack of inventory. They're, uh, they're, and, and then I've seen a couple really thrive as they've just realized that their job 
is not the same job as it was six months ago. Mm -hmm. And can you talk a little bit about that? About how to allow yourself within your career, within your work, to, you know, when when do you want to reframe based on circumstances on the ground and, and how to do it? Because even the way you say, I know you understand what I'm talking about. Yep. So interesting, we have lots of statistics about the real estate business. And one thing that we know is when real estate values go up, the number of realtors goes up. And when they go down, the number of people selling real estate goes down. That most people who call themselves real estate brokers are amateurs. They are showing up, doing their best with their authentic self as a middleman in an industry that for a long time required a real estate broker to be in the mix. And a few of them are professionals. And the professionals see every change in the market as an opportunity because they know why they do this, who they do this for, and they are eager to exchange one set of tools for another if it's going to serve the function. Because it means embracing momentary incompetence on their way to getting good at something new. And mm. they know that when the world changes, the amateurs are going to go away. The amateurs are going to whine and complain. And the professionals, the ones who are in it because they see the craft of it, the professionals do better than ever. Fascinating and really applicable across things. Okay, we're yes. going to go to a little bit of a, not even a speed round. We don't, you don't have to answer quickly. It's not a speed round. I would like you to talk a little bit about emotions, both energizing and enervating. And I don't like, in, in case people don't, enervating people is one of those words people use. Enervating means it saps your energy. I know you know this to people, it saps your energy. But can you talk about the emotions, both energizing and enervating around selling? Meaning uh, 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 people are so conflicted about asking for financial recompense. People are so conflicted about trying to monetize what they do um, at times or knowing how to charge enough. And, uh, and you know, you are so good at, uh, at being willing to say, okay, this thing has a value. I'm going to ask you to pay for it. If you can't afford it, I'll, I mean, you're very good at also if people can't afford it, finding ways for them to get your work. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the baseline sort of thing of, hey, I'm creating something. It has a value. I'm going to assign a value to it, and I'm not going to give it to you for free. Can you talk a little bit about that? Here's a, an analogy that I think will help people because um, I've come to really like selling. Let's say you were head of fundraising for a cause you really care about, whether it's you know buildings on campus or the ACLU or anything in between. Clearly, free is not an option because then it's not a donation anymore. Why would someone give $100,000 to have a building named after them? Is it rude to ask a billionaire to spend $100,000 to have a dorm named after them? Well, here's how I think about it. If you're a billionaire, you have just about everything you can buy with money. What you might not have enough of is legacy and respect and um, being admired by people in your circle. And it might be that naming a building after you on campus is worth $300,000 to you, but it's only $100,000. So I'm calling you because I would like to give you $200,000 in value. Because for $100,000, I'm going to name a building after you. And maybe you want that and maybe you don't. But let me paint a picture of what that might feel like. And if the person buys it from you, they should say thank you. Because you just gave them something that they couldn't get from anybody else. That gave them sustenance and helped them get to where they want to go. So if you can imagine that, 
then shifting to this is my screenplay and here's what you're going to need to pay for it isn't that different because there's plenty of free screenplays online these people aren't looking for a free screenplay they're looking for a screenplay that they can tell their boss about that they can be proud to work on that they can get funding for and all of those things will happen because they bought it from you and charging is part of the story and money is a story because the paper is not worth anything it's a story about who we are and what we've got and what we're capable of and so what we get is the privilege of showing up with something we made and saying uh, i have a story for sale and if you don't want the story i'll send you somewhere else but if you do want the story this is how much it costs it all makes sense and uh and why do you think what is it culturally that makes some of us less willing to ask for what the work is worth what what is it that's what are we what is the negative story we're telling ourselves that we have to so change first of all i'm sort of glad that it's biased in that direction because no one wants to be hustled. Yes. And it's really easy to take what I just said and turn it into a justification for hustling every single person you find. And so I'm glad that not everyone's out there doing that. Um, but why don't we do it? Well, one thing is we haven't quite divorced the work from the person who made the work. And if someone says, mm. I don't like that, or it's not for me, it's easy to come to the conclusion that they don't like us or we're not for you. The other thing that it's easy to do is to imagine that it's final in the sense that if this thing in this moment that we thought was our best work doesn't work, then we're doomed. And I worked my way through this by adding the word yet to all the rejections I was hearing, right? I don't like this proposal yet. I don't think your book is any good yet. And yet opens the door for, oh, I can learn something right now. Maybe I can learn that I shouldn't make this better for this person because they're never going to want it. Or maybe I can learn that they were trying to tell me something and I didn't hear it before, but I heard it now and I can make the work better. Beautiful. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about, were hoping that I would ask, wanted to ask me uh, before we end. Well, I wanted, I had a one minute riff about gimmicks because I just started reading a, a new book on gimmicks that was written up in the New Yorker. And I discovered that the word gimmick is magic spelled backwards. And um, it's a lot, it is tempting in various forms of media as things are changing to seek out a gimmick because a gimmick gets you that flurry of attention and a gimmick momentarily releases the pain and the tension. So what's the difference between a gimmick that's a gimmick and a gimmick that becomes a building block for the future of whatever creative medium you're in? And I think we don't know the answer until after. And so we shouldn't do gimmicks as a short-term hustle, but at the same time, I think that anytime we're getting a signal from our subconscious that we're playing a little too close to the shiny bright objects, we should explore it a little bit because that might be exactly where we need to go. Well, I'll say that when I want to figure out exactly where I need to go, one of the first people I call is you. Oh. And uh, uh, 
and your uh, advice and the way you listen and uh, your friendship is just invaluable. And uh, I'm so glad that we get to do this on the microphone so people can hear everything that you're thinking about and uh, take some of that into their own lives. I hope everybody reads Seth's blog. Don't try to tweet at Seth because he does not read Twitter. You can tweet at me because I obsessively read Twitter at Brian Koppelman, <laughs> even though I'm trying to do so uh, less these days. Seth is also is on Instagram, uh, so you can find him talking about stuff there. And uh, Seth Godin, thank you so much for being on the moment. I hope everybody picks up The Practice. It is a an incredibly useful book. It is the opposite of a hustle. It is uh, at uh, three times the price. It would still be a bargain. Uh, now that sounds gimmicky, what I just said, and yet I mean it. Uh, so uh, what can I tell you? Seth, thanks, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody else, uh, thanks for listening to The Moment, and we will see you. Love you, Brian. Thank you.